verses 11, or sorry, 12 through 17 this morning, but we're actually going to back up and read verse 8 down through 17 together. It says, the Lord said, Lord said, Philip, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father, and the Send the Father, and how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and otherwise, be- otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Verse 12, truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And I will do even greater work, I'm saying, and he will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because he doesn't see because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You guys may have a seat. Hope you have a copy of God's word. This is our pattern our, of what we do here at Grace is to study piece by piece, stroke by stroke through the scriptures, and uh, we're very thankful for that kind of culture we have here and we're in the gospel of john now we are oh about three quarters of the way through it we should finish up by the spring um, by the end of spring by may maybe a little longer than that depending on um you know some some other things that may end up being pushed into our preaching calendar but um let me ask you a question have you ever been a part of something that you felt was special like you just kind of knew, like man, this is this is some, there's something good, there's something special going on here. Whether that whatever that here is, whether it's a job or maybe a, a certain ministry or church or or or, or a group of friends. Um, I think we've all probably had seasons in our life where we go, man, this was a, that's a very unique and very special thing the Lord has put around me. I know for me, I can think of a couple of times, a few times in my life where the Lord specifically gave um, some very special means of grace, if you will, around me. And one of those was a a special band of friends that God had put around me from my hometown back in Virginia. And, uh, and when I say special, I mean, I mean, I know we all have very deep friendships and maybe this will spark you to think, be thankful about the friends God has given you in your life. But this particular group of friends was there just at the nick of time in my life because I was kind of coming into my own spiritually and, and, and had really taken more responsibility for my faith and didn't really know where to start. And so I just ventured in by myself into this very large church when I was 19 years old or maybe 18 years old. And, uh, and I'm trying to figure out where I'm supposed to go. They stuck me in a college and career class. Didn't know what I was doing in that whole situation. And, but God in that, in that midst gave some very key and critical relationships in my life that, that to this day still bear fruit. There are at least a couple of those relationships that I talk to nearly every week, if not at least every couple of weeks. Friends that, you, you know what I'm talking about, the kind of friends where like you get together and you just can't help but reminisce and just story tell because you just have so many stories to tell with one another. Well, that's the kind of group this group was around me, about 10 or 15 of us. 
and I'm thankful for them, and God uses them. It's hard for me to think about that of my young adult years. You know, I turned 46 last, in November, and so I'm not a young adult anymore. And uh, I guess in some ways that's a praise, in some ways that's not a praise, right? And, um, but I digress. Uh, but beyond that group of friends, there was the time when me and Amanda moved here to Nashville, uh, thinking that the Lord was going to do something different when we went to South Nashville and to a church there, and then eventually that church gave birth to, reluctantly gave birth to a church in Nolensville. And uh, that church was, and those friendships, and even to this day, the friendships uh, that still exist there are, are like home. I, I, um, I love this fellowship, but there's something that happens when I walk in the doors down there and I see people I hadn't seen in a few months or a year, and it's just, it's just something wonderful. And you, and you, because you went through some times. Like, it was a difficult season at the beginning, especially. It was a very unique thing. My friends, I won't tell you, I feel the same way about Grace Church. We started this thing six years ago. We we're entering into our seventh year now and I, I just believe more than anything more than any other time in my life that I feel like God's doing something very special I mean again it's not I mean I just want to make sure I'm clear but it's not about numbers it's not about finances it's not about potential buildings it's not about any of those kinds of things although the <laughs> reality is, is all those things matter right we have to cross those bridges which is some of the things we're going to talk about tonight in our members meeting and some of the steps we want to take this year to move us in in a more in those directions and to be more sustainable but what I'm talking about is just the community here. I love this church. Like, I miss this church when I'm not here, when I'm on vacation or traveling. I, I love you, and I, and I know, and I look at you, and I know you love each other. And that is phenomenal. I, I, if you're, you're a guest in here, you, hopefully your experience has been how quickly you've picked up on the fact that, like, the people here really love each other. And, uh, and I hope you can't get out of this room without seeing that visibly in some capacity. And if you're here for the first time or second time or third time this morning, that's what we mean by membership. Like we actually love one another. We're not just here to come and participate and experience and someone just kind of, you know, you're here to kind of visibly just kind of watch everything go on. You're actually here as a body of Christ participating together in this, this whole thing. And so as we're in John chapter 14, I just can't... I just delight in the fact that God gave us this text for this time. I, I said this last week, like we got into John chapter 14 last week or more, in, more deeply into it. And I, and I originally thinking about some of the things I want to talk about last week and this week and going into tonight for our, our members meeting and kind of a vision night. I, uh, I had intended to kind of go off script from John for a couple weeks, but, but God in his mercy gave us this text and they just, they just fit so well with where we are. And so I cannot think of a better text for us to be in in these days. So let's give us a quick reminder of what happened last week. If you weren't here or maybe you just need a quick refresher. Um, we talked about last week as we looked at those texts from uh, verses like, what is it? Verse six, right? I am the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me. We talked about those texts as kind of setting the ground for us. It's always been the ground for us. It's always been the ground. It's always been the center for us here at Grace and always will be the center for us at Grace is, is that the gospel is everything here to us in this church. It's everything. If we have not the gospel, we might as well disband and move on our merry way. It's everything to us. And so I, I say that to us because of where we're going to go today because what Jesus does is he kind of takes the turn because of this, because I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Remember what we talked about. You and I are commanded, this was our last thought that we kind of summed the whole sermon up with, was because of that, 
we continue in our mission and vision here at Grace Church by remembering that confession of who Jesus is, by reveling in the, in the um, incomparable, the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus, that is everything to us. Like we continue in that mission, we're anchored in that mission, we're never going to get beyond that thing, that substance of who we are here at this church. Never, never, never. But because that's true, we get to take the next step here in verses 12, verse 12. Um, and look what it says. Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. So here's the main idea that we're going to just really dive deep into this morning. As you and I revel, as we talked about last week, revel in the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus, you and I are sent, okay? Like there's no denying that fact. Jesus doesn't just call us to sit, soak, and sour, right? He calls us to be sent. We are sent people into whatever some coves of life that you and I are called into, into our providentially inhabit at this point. We are sent to do a great work through the agency and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Everything that we're going to talk about this morning is in this one little statement. Because we revel in the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus, you and I are sent... All right? To do a great work through the agency and power of the Holy Spirit. Two main ideas that we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about that first part. We are sent to do a great work. We're going to unpack what that means. And then we're going to then at the end talk about the church being given the Holy Spirit forever to do that work all right everyone tracking where we're going through big points right we're sent to do a great work and god gives the holy spirit to us forever to do that work to accomplish that work again let's just remind ourselves verse 12 truly truly i say to you whoever believes in me will also do the works that i do and greater works of these that, that he will do because i am going to uh, the father Right? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We're called to do a great work. Three considerations just from this first point that I want to press into us to think about well. Consider, number one, how are these, great, these works greater than Jesus' works? That's probably the first question you have. How on earth am I called to do greater works than Jesus? Well, that's a good question, and we need to press into it, and we need to think of it. Because what I want you to do is I want to think about what this doesn't mean first, then we're going to talk about what it does mean, okay? What it doesn't mean is that you and I are called to go do the miraculous. Like, there are many people who will take this verse and twist it in all kinds of things, and therefore the church is supposed to demonstrate great spiritual miraculous works on the earth, um, and we're to do so in greater measure than Jesus. And we need to make it clear here that although the disciples had many examples, I'm sorry, the apostles had many examples, we look at the book of Acts, and we can see great examples of miraculous things happening through the ministry of the apostles, right? Here's some examples, like revelations and dreams. We have examples of healing of Saul's sight, the resurrections of Tabitha. Her name is Dorcas, by the way. If you have a daughter and you're looking for a name, I recommend Dorcas. It's a great one to, you know, maybe pass on to the generations. The resurrection of Eutychus. Like, these are wonderful things, and they cannot be denied. And they're things that God in his goodness shows us that he can and will work powerfully through his people. But that's not the work that Jesus has in mind here. 
Um, these are significant, but at the end of the day, they're not greater than what Jesus did because we can look at 10, 12 examples of this and nothing compared to what Jesus did in his three years of ministry. The miraculous. This is not what he has in mind. I like R.C. Sproul's thoughts on this one. Um, I do not think he meant, he says, that we all would do miracles for all ages, but the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform works that go far beyond the local community of Jerusalem and Judea. In other words, he's thinking contextually, if you will. The church has been empowered, he says, for missionary and ministry work across the globe. So, what, so in, in context of what R.C. is saying here, I think, I believe with him, agree with him, that our Lord is getting at something that is extremely important for the church in every age. And it is this, that, we, that what, what seems to be in view here for Jesus is the extent of the work that Christ began. In other words, you and I are called, and we will do greater work. We're going to do far greater number of conversions. We're going to do far wider reach of the gospel beyond that context. So Jesus did all of his ministry within the boundaries of Israel, within the boundaries, within not even several miles of Jerusalem, for that matter. So, but if you look in the book of Acts, we see that there's something that happened among the apostles that's not what Jesus. Jesus never preached the gospel and had 3,000 people converted. Could he have done that? Of course he could have done that. But that's not what he did. He never preached and saw 3,000 converted in one day. He never was able to preach beyond the cultural and geographical context. Therefore, when you see in the book of Acts what happened, the gospel begins to just boom, just blow up and spread everywhere. Like they could take it. They were taking the gospel and they were planting churches. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And these are the greater works that Jesus is alluding to. These are the greater works. And I just love this because this shows you something about the humility of Christ towards his people. That Jesus, even, even Jesus, it gives you even the heart of what you see in Philippians chapter 2 when it says he didn't come to be greater, right? He didn't come, he came here so that he might be humbled on the cross, but therefore then empower us the Holy Spirit, you and I would be allowed as his servants to see greater fruit than his own. Now, of course, you and I know it's his work of salvation that is the ultimate fruit, right? It's his work and power, and then therefore the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is the ultimate greatest work and fruit of all. But that you and I could take that, preach it, and then it spreads throughout the world. It reminds us that even right now, as we are now some 2,000 years post-Christ's resurrection and ascension, that his visible presence with us is not absolutely necessary for the progress of his kingdom through us. Amen? You and I can participate in the preaching of the gospel, and he's with us. He's empowered us, and we can go boldly into the world. So what does this mean for us before we move on to the couple of other considerations in this first point? Well, I want to say this. One is no work is too hard or too great for us. You don't have to be a church with lots of people and lots of money to do great things for the kingdom. You don't. You just have to be faithful. You have to preach the gospel, rest in his, God's power and strength through you and in the, in the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. But there is no, great, no work too great and too hard for us. It also reminds me, and I hope it reminds you, that we can and we should expect great things. I think sometimes in our kind of Ooh, just be cautious kind of mentality that we kind of go, oh, I don't want to get my hopes up. Okay, that's fine. And there's some, some reasonableness to this, reasonableness to that. 
but we should expect great things. We should expect great things for this local congregation. We should expect that this local congregation will eventually help us spawn off new daughter congregations, many of them if the Lord allows. We should expect that this church will continue to grow and, and see new disciples come in and, and whatever. I was talking to a brother, texting with him yesterday, and he was texting with the elders and just saying, you know, we want to see us not just be growing um, like uh, crossways, like just believers coming in, which of course we, that's fine, but, he, but he's absolutely right. We want to see us continue to go out there in the world so that we're playing the gospel. New people come to know Christ. We should expect that. We should expect whatever feeble offering we play in that, that God will bear our fruit in that. Our Lord is working with us and for us. Our Lord is working with us and for us. The Lord works in and through our work. It's not our work that's the main idea. It's not, it's not you and I mustering up all of our abilities and strength to show how great we are, but it is the fact that we would take every whatever we have, whatever simple offering we have, God will take that and he will use it for his glory. I love what J.C. Ryle says considering Exodus 17. He says, it was not so much the sword of Joshua that defeated Amalek as it was the intercession of Moses on the hill for him. And that's the same idea that we have here. We're going to come back to this in a little while. Same idea that Jesus, Jesus goes so that the Father will send another, we'll talk about here in a few minutes, this role of spirit, so that his work will go through us into the world. And that's what we're called to do. Also, just, again, before I move on, I think it's also important that we, we deal with one issue that's somewhat timely. And, and it's this. Sometimes you hear, and I think fairly, about the black eyes that the church has suffered throughout history and even in our modern day because we've, of things like the Crusades, religious persecution, bigotry, all undeniable sins, the way in which they're carried out. I hope I, we could all come to agreement on that. I think we can also compound that with today when we've seen countless examples of pastors and churches who either turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to real critical issues in the church where people have been mistreated in some capacity in some way, or even the pastors themselves or the senior pastor or whoever that might be might be disqualified because of abusive behavior and attitudes and authoritarian attitudes towards the people because he sees them as serving his agenda, not he serving the church. And We've seen countless examples of this over the last several years. And I just want to say from the very beginning, before I move on here, the church can and should learn from those things. That, that, that we need to think about our witness in, in light of some of those things and learn from other people's failures. Not that we need to repent of other people's failures, but that we learn from them so that we would then guard ourselves so that we would continue to be a healthy church. Now, side note, I'm going to actually be doing and working with our deacons and elders and staff about kind of working through our polity in our meeting here. We're going to have a meeting here in a couple weeks. Um, but I'm also going to be using some of that material in a podcast to talk about what is good Baptist polity and how it protects us from things like this. Okay? So I hope that maybe I'll encourage you to tune in. And so people look at these events and they say, man, the church has an abysmal track record. And, and even sadly, what's more than that is you have many Christians who are down the church too. And I, and I want to say in spite, and even though those things are real and we should repent of those things, let me say this, no Christian should ever be down the church. Ever. 
Because this is the treasured people of God. And this is the people that God has promised he would do a great work through. And so to whatever our failures are, and we can name as many of them as you want to, I'm sure we could go make a list and go as long as you want to, even among us here, God says loves his church. And we should never be down on the church. Actually, what, again, R.C. Sproul says, if we look at the history of Western civilization, we see the primary impetus for the abolition of slavery in the Western world coming largely through the impact of Christian, the Christian church. We see countless institutions of higher learning and universities and colleges were founded by ministries of Christians. It was the Christian community that moved across the globe um, building orphanages for children who were without hope. The whole hospital movement in Western history was driven largely by the Christian church. By the Spirit's endowment, the church extends the work of Jesus, the benefits of Jesus, and indeed the ministry of Jesus to the very ends of the earth. Jesus was preparing his disciples in this passage here, these greater works he's talking about, in this passage for this when he spoke of this in the upper room. So yes, we can be honest, we can learn, we can be humbled, and yet we can still turn and go, but this is your instrument, God. Not parachurch ministries, not denominations, but the church is God's instrument for these works. Nothing else. And we can be, have good, great hope in that. So let's take a good idea of what we understand about the greater works you and I are called to. Second thing I want us to notice about this, though, is the works, the actual works that we're called to. And that's verse 15, right? It says, if you love me, you will keep my Commandments. So what we see in this passage, well, two fundamental works you and I are called to do. Anyone want to guess what they are? Love God and keep his commands. That is fundamental to God's treasured people. God's treasured people abandon that work when we don't let God, love of God, and we don't have love for his law and commandments be central to our understanding of what the good news of the gospel actually is. So one of the things I would always want encourage us to think through is the fact that you, you, when you think about the gospel, let's not get a tipsy side of the gospel where it's all grace. Now, of course, it is all grace. Now, I want to make sure we say this. It's all grace. But you can't, you can't grasp the magnitude of grace. You can't grasp the magnitude of our justification in Christ without the law and, and really seeing ourselves honestly. No, you love God and you keep his commandments. Like, the law isn't abolished. Jesus fulfilled the law, but he hasn't abolished the law. See, the reformers in the historic church held this view of the passage, saying the obedience is inevitable consequence of a great affection for Jesus. Did you get that? Obedience is the inevitable consequence of a great affection for Jesus. So we agree with the reformers. Justification is not based on our works, but that true justification always generates a response of obedience. And friends, look, look, let's think about this. Obedience, and just make sure we're all clear about this, what obedience is and what it's not. It's not defined as you and I achieving or participating in every conceivable potential endeavor, good endeavor. There are a lot of things that need to be improved in this world. And you individually can go and participate in them as God leads you so long as we are not living in sin in any capacity. But what the good work that you and I, the good endeavor you and I are called to do, the good endeavor that we then reflect to the world is not so much 
every good endeavor that we would do out in the community or whatever else. Again, not that and those things certainly do matter, but it's a deepening love for Christ, a deepening love for his church, and a desire to see that proclaimed to the nations. That is what we're called to do. And we know what this looks like. If you were to survey the Gospel of Matthew, you see what this looks, this deepening love for Christ, a deepening love for the church, and a deepening love to proclaim this. We see in Matthew 16 when Jesus, and we talked about this last week briefly, when Jesus says, who the people say that I am, and they give them their answers, but then he says, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter has that a wonderful, you know, confession, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as Jesus says very clearly and emphatically, this, this confession is the one which I will build my church. So the very first thing, the very first command, right, that Christ gives his church is to preach that. Preach that. You are loving God and you're keeping his commands if you preach Jesus. You preach Christ and him crucified. But then if you move on down through the chapters to Matthew 22, what is he, and Jesus is asked what? You know, by this Pharisee, um, or lawyer, excuse me, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds, to love God and love your neighbor, right? To love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and strength, and to do likewise, love your neighbor. Jesus says you can't do one without the other. So there is this love, this command, you and I go into the world to love God and love neighbor. We, this is what we are called to do. And as we're loving neighbor, here's our ultimate goal, Matthew 28, make disciples. So we love people with one aim, so that they would come to hear the good news of the gospel and they would come disciples themselves. That's our own aim. It's never to create a, a Christian world or Christian programs. No, we, we love so that people will come to know the love of Christ and become full-on disciples of Jesus. Last thing I want to consider from this first point, right, of these greater works you and I are called to is consider the role of prayer. Consider the necessity of prayer in these works. He says, again... Whatever you ask in my name, verse 13, I will do it for the, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Friends, these, are, these words are of great comfort for us here this morning. Amen? Because I don't know how many of you have been in the same situation that I have. Imagine many of you have. Sometimes you just wonder if your prayers are just feeble and weak. And the answer is probably yes. But this is a great comfort for us in the middle of this, that no matter how weak and imperfect, imperfect our, our supplications may be, like God uses them, and when we cry out to him, even in our, in, our, in our weakest position, he hears us, and he will work through us. God pledges that our work will be a success when we ask him to accomplish the work through us. Why? Because Christ is our advocate. And that will become very, very important here in a minute as we think about another advocate the Lord is sending. But when we think about the word advocate and Christ is our advocate, who is he? He is the, this literally means he's a friend in court. So when you and I fail and we're broken, we messed up and we, and we realize we fall well short of God's standards, like we have a friend in court who goes and pleads our case before the judge constantly. Constantly. 
every day, moment by moment. This is the advocate that we have in Christ. And we honor him. We honor the advocate. We honor the Lord God in heaven when we send our petitions up to him in our greatest weakness. There's no prayer too small and certainly no prayer too large. Now, let's make sure we deal with, again, a potential abuse here, right? This is not a blank check. This anything that we see here in this text is not this kind of name it, claim it, prosperity, gospel. If you name it, you'll be well healthy, wealthy, and wise. That kind of absolutism when we're interpreting the scripture is an abuse of the word of God, and it does lead to great error. I think most of us in this room get that, okay? So just because you pray for God's providence, just because you ask God to do great things to the church, that doesn't mean that when we do those things, that means that this church is going to be wealthy, or you're going to be wealthy, or, or that somehow or another that's the way in God which God's going to work through your life. That's just not how God works. In fact, if you look through the Bible, he tends to work the opposite. Yeah, I know that's not the most popular idea here, right? We don't like the idea that we might have to suffer a little bit in order for God to do the great works he wants to do, but that's typically what we see in Scripture. But nevertheless, in spite of that potential error, and we, and we understand the abuses of it, we dare not ignore the comfort of this promise for us. And, and listen, the boundaries are set clear here on what exactly we're, how we are to pray, right? He says it here, and again, if you ask me anything in my name, verse 14, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commands. So there's the boundaries. That any petition that's lifted up to the Lord, right, with a love for God and a love for his law, a love for his word, a love for his truth, if we ask anything that arises out of true love for God and true love for his law and commands, God hears that and he will use that and he will strengthen us and he'll use us and empower us for his work. But I think it's also important that we ask this question. If this is true, how is it that so many of us, I mean, us in this room or Christians outside of this room, go on struggling then with little peace in our life? Well, I think it's simple. We have not because we ask not. Do we really believe God wants to do good for his people? Do we really believe that God really wants to flourish his church? Do you really believe, do I really believe, and listen, I'm standing right here with you. We have not. I have not sometimes because I ask not. I, I, I jokingly say a lot of times, like, there's been specific things that I've been praying for and I can tell you over the years, whenever I specifically prayed, I'm telling you, this is, this is a goofy thing. But when I, when I would ask the Lord, like, God, you know, this, bring us some new fresh families, God has always answered that prayer. Within weeks. I've been praying recently, God would bring us families with young children. He's answering that prayer. In more ways than you know right now. And that's a beautiful thing. Why? Because we want to be a church that lasts for generations. We want to be a church that lasts until Jesus returns. So we ask, we have not because we ask not. And I just want to encourage us to take eight, uh, Psalm 8110 
to heart, which is what? He says, the psalmist says, open your mouth wide and I'll feel it. Open your mouth wide and I'll feel it. That the one who prays much will be the one who proves to do the most for Christ's sake. That is the principle here. If you, if you want to see more conversions for our church in this next year, pray for it. If you want to see our church begin to plant another church in the next couple years or whatever, how long the Lord tarries, now, pray for it. If you want to see our church be able to get in a position where we can either, whatever our next steps are in terms of building process, pray for it. If you want to see the world loved and cared for and, and, and maybe some, some, some rational sensibilities come back to us in this world, pray for it. God's praying people accomplish great things. But there's still one large looming question, and this leads us into the second point. How can, can we do this work? And the answer Jesus gives is, because I go to the Father. Because Jesus goes to the Father, the next step in the equation is, in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper. So how do we go about the work, these greater works? How can we do these things? Through Jesus leaving, which sounds impossible, right? I mean, you can imagine his disciples going, what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're, we're going on without you? Oh, yeah, but I'm sending another helper to you. Because I leave, and only if I leave, Jesus says, will you do these greater works. Right? That is unfathomable in our brains, but let's talk about what... It, this verse says, let's look at a couple verses here again. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So what's this all about? What's Jesus talking about? Well, he's, it's the first time Jesus has mentioned the sending of the Holy Spirit, this gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it's new, fresh material for his disciples. And I want to make sure we say clearly, let's not suppose that in the whole Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't dwell in the hearts of many of the Old Testament saints. But I think our, our proper theology recognizes that in the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, that there's going to be a particular influence, a particular power of the Holy Spirit that will rest with and inside believers, individual believers, and when we collectively come together as that body, there is great power and great strength, and God will do a great work. Again, I'm helped by R.C. Sproul's insight here in terms of understanding how the Bible unfolds this idea. You understand that Jesus performed miracles, right? And why did Jesus perform those miracles? Well, because the Spirit came down upon him at his baptism. Now, there's, that's, that's interesting, because the same kind of thing happened to Moses back in the Old Testament, back in Exodus, or back in Deuteronomy, excuse me, that Moses would do mighty works by the Spirit's power. You'll remember in Numbers 11, the work is increasing, the Israelites are growing, and they're multiplying, and the work is becoming way too much for Moses to handle. And so what is it that he is commanded to do? Well, God commands him to what? Appoint 70 elders to 
assist and come alongside him in this task to lead Israel. And God commanded him as he does, and he says, and if you, if you do this, I'm going to put, this, I'm gonna put my spirit into them as well. Okay, so in other words, the implication is, you're not the only man with the spirit, Moses. I'm going to put these 70 men, I'm going to give them the spirit too to help you in the work. Now, one of those particular individuals is named Joshua, who was zealous for Moses and zealous for his authority, really kind of pushed back. He was one of those 70 elders who got the spirit. He says, no, Moses, I think this is a really bad idea. I think we need to keep you central and, you know, whatever else. And here's what Moses says to him. Are you zealous for my sake? In other words, is this about me? No, oh, that all the Lord's people, all, not just the 70 elders, but all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put in him him his spirit upon them. That was his prayer. That was his wishful thinking, if you will, as he's conversing with Joshua that day. Not only I would have the spirit, not only the 70 elders would have the spirit, but all of God's people would be dwelt with the Holy Spirit. Well, wouldn't you know that there was something prophetic about that? Because that wishful thought, that wishful prayer would actually be an articulated prophecy in Joel. And Joel, he says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will, uh, I'm sorry, it shall come to pass afterward that I will put my spirit on all flesh. Of course, that all flesh means God's flesh, God's people, all of God's people. God would anoint the whole church, all believers, with His Spirit. And that prophecy is reaffirmed here in John chapter 14. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's not enough for you to have one man filled with the Spirit, that all of you must be filled with the Spirit to go do this great work. That's the work that's here. That's how fundamentally amazing this whole thing is. Forget about what the world's doing. you got the Spirit. And you go in my name. Now... That's the idea. That's the theological context here. But let's find out a little bit about the Holy Spirit here and who he is. It says here that he is another helper, or in the CSB it says he's another counselor, or, or some would might say he's a comforter. Let's talk about those words for a minute. The word helper here, the word in the text here is paraclete in, in, in Greek, which means, of course, that we said earlier, an advocate or a comforter or counselor. I think advocate's the, the best use of this word. It's the attorney, like we said earlier, who's a friend in court. When we read Romans chapter 8 and we find those great promises that we are now filled with the Spirit, we are adopted as God's children, and it then tells us about midway through chapter 8 that God will give you the Spirit and He will pray for you when you don't know how to pray for yourself. This is the work of the Spirit. He's an advocate for us in the matters of the law and in matters of righteousness. When you and I fail to meet those things, God, through His Spirit, does it through you. So he's not, so when we think about this word, comforter, yes, but sometimes we think of comforter as just simply a person who consoles in times of pain and adversity, and that's certainly true of the Holy Spirit. That's certainly true of Jesus, right? But the Latin root for comforter is to strengthen. What does a comforter do? They come along to strengthen that. It's the same idea as an advocate. He comes to strengthen and be a friend in court. He strengthened the testimony of the person in court. This is what an advocate does. The Spirit comes to strengthen his people. But notice it's he's another advocate. The word another is important there, right? Just He's not the original one. And who's the original one? Jesus. 
John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, you, we, have an advocate, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is what God does. This is how God works with his people is to advocate for them when they cannot advocate for themselves. This is the nature of the entire gospel message. And so we go out with the Spirit because we know we have an advocate, another advocate who's out there, another helper who's going out there with us so that you and I are not necessarily leaning on our own abilities to do the work. What an abysmal failure that would be, would it not? But I can take what little that I have and God will bring fruit as he wishes to it, just like he can for you as well and what he'll do in this church. And so I just want to make sure we, this is clear in case you, it's not clear to you that any notion that the Holy Spirit has come to add or to replace, as some people in certain parts of Christianity would say, the ministry of Jesus in the church, that would be an a, egregious error to understanding theology. Jesus, the Holy Spirit's not a replacement. He's not the next stage of revealing of who God is. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed since the time, since before time began. They are triune God. They have their agencies, they have a unique personhood, but they are one God in, 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 one, in, in three persons. And so he's not a force. He's not an influence. He's a he. He's not an inward impression. He's a person. And when we treat the Holy Spirit as a force, we treat him as if he's there to be our, um, oh, I don't know, our genie in a bottle. That's where the whole name it, claim it gospel comes from. It's just wrong. No, it says here he is the spirit of truth. He's a helper who is the spirit of truth. He has a special office to apply the truth of God to the hearts of believers and guide them into truth more and more and to sanctify them by the truth more and more. If you want to know what the role of the Holy Spirit is in our life, that's what it is. He has got this office of truth and applying that truth to us and guiding us in that truth and sanctifying us by that truth. And, but also, this text tells us that the world doesn't know him, cannot know him. And so if you want to know why, if, you know, listen, what makes you weird to the world is not your politics or your morality. Those are weird, yes. It's because of the Spirit. Because the Spirit doesn't, I mean, the world doesn't understand. What, what are you talking about? The Spirit's doing this. And why would you do such strange things? Why? Because the work of the Spirit is to bring conviction. The world doesn't know conviction. The work of the Spirit is to bring repentance. The work of the Spirit is to bring faith and hope and love that cannot be understood by the world. See, that's, that's the work. And this Spirit dwells within believers, and we are to be known of Him and to be known and to know Him. Through the Holy Spirit, God makes us into new men and women. And through the Holy Spirit, He makes us new creatures and light and salt. Um, in, this, in this earth compared to this world's disaster. And he gives this to, given to the elect to abide with them forever and ever and ever. So here's the thing, though. 
why, if, you, if somehow or another this is passed by you, why does that matter for us today? Why does that matter for our conversation tonight? Well, I think it means everything to us. What it means for us, and here's a few thoughts, it really comes out of the goals that I've been thinking about for our church and the elders have been processing for our church over the last couple of months. If you don't know and I don't know that we're participating in a great work, how do we know how to play our part? It starts with understanding that we're part of a great work and we need to be participants in that great work. The second thought I have is, is that if we are going to be a people who do a great work, we must place prayer at the center of this great work to do more. And that's going to come with more than just a pastor praying over you on Sunday mornings. It's going to come with a diligent and deliberate effort by the parts of our church, all of us here this morning, to participate in our midweek prayer that comes twice a month. Another initiative that we'll talk more about tonight is, is mapping out of our membership into what we call Shepherd Fellowships based on where you live, and you'll meet together regularly for a meal and prayer. That's it. To care for one another but also to pray for one another. Can you imagine if we have homes around this area who just focus on loving one another and crying out to the Lord what kind of work God would do here in Rutherford County through this church? I can't even begin to imagine what that would look like for us. We'll discuss more about that tonight. But it's also because of prayer, it's also be, because that we're called to this great work that we must place a missional, relational intensity and fervor at the center of our church's life. I said it earlier, we need more growth than just, and, and listen, any believer who wants to come here and join us, man, join us. We are glad you're here, but we need every believer saying God has uniquely placed us in certain contexts so that we can go and proclaim the good news of the gospel to them and see them converted to Jesus. For that purpose, the next leadership lab, which will come up in May, in April, excuse me, we're going to devote to anyone who's interested to maybe thinking about what it would look like to, to be missionally connected and engaged in the world. And, uh, and so some good things are coming together for that. Last, before we head to the table, or take of the table together, if what we talk about tonight and over the course of the next year and five years, really, or more, we need to remember this. There's no work that stands before us that God is not willing and ready to empower us to do through his spirit. Let me say that again. There is no work that stands before us that God is not ready and willing for us to accomplish through his spirit. God will do it if we'll do it. If you want to reach more neighbors, he will do it. If you want to see us get into future building needs, he will accomplish that. If you want us to see where God might help us plant a church in the future, well, God can do that if we cry out to him. If we want to pray that God would help us reach more young families with young children, well, my goodness, the Lord will do that if our people will raise them in prayer. Church, I hope this has just wet your whistle for tonight. I hope you recognize that members' meetings are a very, very important part of our church's life. If you are not a member or maybe pressing through membership or you're going to go through our next membership class, which will start here either next week or week after next, I'm, I'm trying to confirm who all is going to be in it. Um, 
you're still welcome to come tonight, as Amanda said earlier, to enjoy a meal with the fellowship, but also come and gloriously take joy in the work God's called us to do. And let's talk about what the things we need to do and shore up in our church so that we can become that fellowship. See, our church is not interested in becoming the big next hit thing. We want to be a meaningful membership of the local believers that preaches Christ, makes disciples, and does everything we can to preach the gospel to the nations. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, help us now this morning as we finish up this time together. And Jesus, would you be glorified in our time together and, and, and 